Genesis. Will you open your Bible to Genesis 38? Genesis 38. And for those of you who've recently preached through Genesis, you just gasped. Uh, this is, Steve, you had an R-rated sermon. This is an actual R-rated sermon. Uh, the text is the famous story of Judah and Tamar. And I preached this last year on assignment at Steve Lawson's church, actually. Uh, he went out of town, I think on purpose, when it was time to teach Genesis 38, and they assigned me this passage. And, and I just found it to be so rich and instructive. And when we were talking about the theme of a remnant, uh, I thought this is a great illustration of God's remnant being preserved by grace. And so I want to I share that with you, uh, Genesis 38. I mean, it's a, it's a frightening chapter. Uh, I mean, I'm going to keep it the Bible is always so veiled and appropriate in its language, so it does a, it does a perfect job of showing us uh, truth in, in even a dark setting, but there's a lot to cover here. When I was in Texas to preach this, I brought my son with me. He's 12 years old, so he was kind of on the front row for this sermon, and it's, it's, it's got a lot in there. Uh, we had just finished hunting uh, quail or uh, dove. We're hunting dove, and then we fished for catfish. My son is, is sort of the Esau in some ways, um, not in others. <laughs> but he loves to hunt fish, and, and he's 12 years old. He, he caught 28 catfish uh, in a day, and I had to clean 28 catfish. And Not everybody wants to clean or eat catfish. My, my dad called, and he said uh, the best recipe for catfish is you get the catfish, you nail it to a board, and you put the, the whole thing in a smoker for hours and hours. And then you, finally you take it out, you take the catfish off the board, you throw the catfish in the trash, and you eat the board. <laughs> That's how most people handle Genesis 38. It's just, this is a, an interruption in the Joseph narrative. It's, it's a little too violent, a little too dark and charged. Uh, but we know, brothers, that all Scripture is inspired by God and useful and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction. It's here to equip us and help us, and I think it has a shining illustration of God preserving His remnant by grace. So let's, let's start by reading uh, in its entirety Genesis 38. It came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Harah. Judah saw there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah, and it was at Chazib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of Yahweh, so Yahweh took his life. And then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of Yahweh, so Yahweh took his life also. And then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, 
Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now after considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Harah the Adulamite. It was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who is by the road at Anayim? And she said, but they said, There has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. And behold, she is also with child by harlotry. And then Judas said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. It came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. And then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread in his hand, and he was named Zerah. This is the very word of the living God. Father, would you help your servants to receive this truth, to understand it, and to apply it to their lives and ministries. In Jesus' matchless name, amen. The Puritan John Flavel, in a sermon titled, Navigation Spiritualized has a memorable sentence. He said, The providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. And like the Hebrew scripts, 
which is read from right to left, God's providence in Flavel's understanding is best understood not in the moment of crisis, in the time of trial or sin or temptation or provision or sustenance, but down the road looking back. We all understand that, right? We understand how the choices we made, good or bad, wise or unwise, looking back over the decades of our lives have been instrumental in bringing our lives to the place where they are today. The church you serve at, the woman who is your wife, The circumstances of your life and and ministry uh, all can be seen with greater clarity from a a, a back-looking perspective. And so providence, like the Hebrew script, is best read backwards. We see God's hand clearly or more clearly as time passes. Well, if that's true, and I think it is, I think that's the best approach to understand Genesis 38. So before we dive into the chapter itself, I want to take you on a brief journey where we look backwards. Let's go to the future, find out the fate of this certain son of Israel who's on display in Genesis 38, a man by the name of Judah and the clan he represents. And you know that his most famous son is featured in the conclusion of the Bible in Revelation chapter 5. So if you turn there, that's where we begin reading Providence backwards. Revelation 5, in that climactic scene where the the seals are being opened, but there is no one worthy to open the book and break its seals. And this is a cause of great consternation. Chapter 5, verse 4, Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And this leads to that most awesome scene of worship where the living creatures and the elders fall down before the Lamb and they sing a new song, Worthy are you to take the book to break its seals, for you were slain, and with your blood purchased men from God, for God from every tribe and tongue and nation, and have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. That is the culminating climactic scene that brings the tribe of Judah to her final destiny. And through the tears of John and the worship of the angelic ones, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is the one who has overcome and the one who can open up the scroll. This cumulative moment in the tribe of Judah finds its beginning in Genesis 38. And we understand from the very lineage of Jesus that the genealogy of our Lord is rooted into that Judean tribe. He is number four. Judah is in Jesus's genealogy. The fourth name listed is Judah and Tamar in Luke's lineage, going all the way back to Adam in Luke's lineage. He's 24th on the list. So Judah, because Jesus and his family were from the tribe of Judah, a tribe that was prominent, a tribe that was significant, we should be asking ourselves in light of the the shocking and awful chapter we just read in Genesis, how did this happen? Again, we're trying to move backwards to understand this, to get perspective on what God is doing in preserving His remnants. 
And so from Revelation and then the genealogies of our Lord, we could make a pit stop in, say, the book of Ruth, right? I mean, Ruth is a similar story to the story we read in Genesis 38 in in some ways, except it's far more lovely and romantic, obviously. Ruth's story, though, is a story of a Moabitess woman that married into this same tribe, this Judas tribe. I mean, the book of Ruth opens saying uh, that these Moabite women were uh, verse 1, a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. He was, a, he was a Judahite. And after all the drama and romance of the book of Ruth and the providence of God on display, the book closes by reminding us that the generations of Perez, who is the, the son born from Genesis 38. Also, verse 11 of Ruth chapter 4, all the people who were in the court solemnizing Ruth and Boaz's uh, marriage, speak this blessing to Ruth and Boaz. We are witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in uh, Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Listen to verse 12. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which Yahweh will give you by this young woman. What kind of Christmas card is that? <laughs> what sort of blessing is being given? I mean, you want that spoken at your wedding? Should I read Genesis 38? Open the thing up? Hope you have a family like this. There's something going on in God's providence as we read it backwards and we work through the the storyline of the Judahites in the Bible to figure out what's going on here. The story of Ruth, though full of bereavement and, and romance, also has this same element of the connection to Judah. Now maybe Genesis 48 is where we need to go. Genesis 48 will spoil the whole Genesis plotline here. Israel, as you know, gives Jacob as a blessing to Joseph's son. Manasseh and Ephraim uh, really come from this. They uh, firstborn blessing, which makes very little sense because, as you know, Joseph is not the firstborn. But he blesses the sons, Israel does, by crossing his hands and gives a blessing to the secondborn. Sort of a theme in Genesis. God's reversing those normal expectations with Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. But as you move towards Genesis 49... I'd encourage you to turn there with me. What you see is Jacob's last will and testament. And it's far more than that. It's not just probate law. It's not just who gets how many camels from the patriarch. What's happening here is Israel, Jacob, is, is uttering words of prophecy over each of his sons. Inspired by the Spirit of God, he speaks to their future. And in Genesis 49, Jacob summons his sons, verse 1, and says, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. And what's happening here is it's helping us understand who Judah would become, why his tribe would have such prominence, not only in Israel's history, but in all of redemptive history. Remember, Israel had 12 sons. They're listed here. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, uh, the fourth son, Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin. And he's going to speak over all 12 of them. I'm not going to look at all 12 uh, because I added a song, which I wasn't allowed to do. But we got to look at the first four because we got to figure out how do we get to Judah? 
because Judah is the fourth born. So look at son number one, Reuben, verse three. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might in the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. This is a, a prophecy that shows that the first son, Reuben, has disqualified himself from being the recipient of that covenant that's to continue from Abraham and beyond. That story, Reuben's story, is told in Genesis 35, verse 22. He sleeps with his father's concubines, a horrible defilement that disqualifies him from receiving the privilege of a firstborn son. Well, what about Simeon, the secondborn? If Reuben is out, Simeon and Levi are featured, the second and third sons, in verse 5. So what about son number two and three? If one is out, how about these? They are shown in this prophecy to also be disqualified from receiving the promise, receiving the blessing. And I need to emphasize this. This isn't about camels and tents and servants and gold and, and inheritance primarily. This is about the promise that you trace in Genesis, the promise of God's covenant love that he set on his servant Abraham, calling him from Ur, away from being a moon worshiper, and giving him that trifold promise of he will have a people and a land, and then that most magnificent corner of the promise that the people and the land would be a blessing to the entire world. That's the promise. That's the blessing. That's the primary focus of this blessing being given by the patriarch. And it's a glimmering reminder of this messianic hope that the Bible is anticipating that God would redeem not only his people, but the nations through his people. This is the big promise, and it falls on the firstborn supposedly, but Reuben is out, and now Simeon and Levi, verse 5, are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let not my soul into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Simeon and Levi join their brother Reuben, the firstborn, in being equally disqualified. These two for lacking control. Reuben went after his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi in a vengeful scene that unfolds in Genesis 34. Their sister Dinah was raped and attacked in an act of rage and vengeance. They destroyed an entire village of people, slaughtered them. And God says through Israel, they are not the ones. But I know what you're thinking. we got to throw out Judah too. Number four, you just read that, at the shepherd's conference. He's bad news. Judah's sleeping with prostitutes. There's incest in here. There's, there's the same kind of wrathful violence as he says his, his daughter-in-law should be burned. There's all kinds of grievances we should have against Judah right now because we just read his, his infamous chapter. And you know that, that Judah's story doesn't just start in, in, in 38, the chapter before that, which in Hebrew is called Genesis 37, is Judah is the one that turns the whole thing for profit, right? They're going to kill their, their brother, and Reuben intercedes and says, wait, don't kill him. Let's just throw him in this hole. He'll die of natural causes. And Judah says, we can make some scratch in this deal. 
there's some Midianite traitors. Let's sell him. And, and then the, the scene closes with, with him being dragged off. Joseph being dragged off to Potiphar's house into Egypt. I mean, for the, for the narrative in Genesis, it's to never be seen again is how the reader has to be thinking about it. It's how his 11 brothers were thinking about it. And so we're thinking Judah should also get canceled. But that's not what happens. Genesis 49 verse 8, listen to this stunning prophecy. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion, as a lion who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Judah is praised. His lioness, his his lion-like strength is featured. The permanent scepter of God's rule is granted to him. This Little prophecy is ripe with messianic language. And this is exactly what what happens. I mean, no son is given a word of prophecy that involves a continual rulership, a power and a blessing, a preeminence that's alongside even Joseph, the, the favorite son. I mean, Joseph's two sons receive an extraordinary blessing in their inheritance and will be primary recipients of the Father's will. But here you have Judah, and eventually in biblical history, as we've seen, Judah rises above. It's Judah where King David will come from, his his great-grandmother Ruth. It's Judah that will be the line of kings. The glory will not depart from him. Joseph's tribe, it will will pass away from his tribe. And and Judah's tribe will be the one that receives the, the bulk of this prophetic significance. And that brings us back to Genesis 38. The burden of this chapter, the burden of Moses, his agenda, as he pens this chapter under the Spirit's inspiration, is not to give you some cute moral lessons that you can inflict on this chapter, like avoid prostitutes. I mean, that's sound advice. It's just not the message of Genesis 38. Genesis 38 isn't trying to get you to turn it into a comic book where here's a bad guy, here's a good guy. And, and it's not just a, a simple message while well, Jesus' genealogy is, is full of sinners because people are sinners. There's something more profound here that highlights the preserving grace of God in his remnant. That same remnant that we're, we're thinking about through Romans 9, the, the elect ones, the chosen ones, how through all of human history, through all of sin, through all of everything that's happened in these thousands of years, does God 
keep these people and sustain these people. Well, Judah and Tamar's story becomes an illustration of the beautiful, persevering grace of God. And what we find when we see how this promise lands on Judah in a powerful and impressive way that the tension that's been built up in Genesis up to this point is showing us that this promise will land on Judah and it will land on him in a powerful way, an impressive way, a historical way, a royal way, a righteous way that will lead all the way to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Lion of Judah in the culmination of all human history. And I think it's in Genesis 38. So I want to show it to you. I don't think this is a catfish that needs to be thrown out. I think this is an integral part of biblical history, crucial, indispensable, perfectly woven into the Joseph story, not, as the liberals say, some interruption in the Joseph story that soured it out so well, and then suddenly we have a chapter about Jude and Tamar, and then back to Joseph's story. Instead, this is perfectly crafted into the Joseph story, which is the larger story of the tribes of Israel. You cannot understand the promise that Yahweh gave to Abraham, the promise of seed to the children, of redemption and continuance of God's covenant promise apart from Judah's story. He is the first of Jacob's sons to realize God's providence. He is the first of Jacob's sons to watch God bring good from evil. The story of Jacob's son Judah shows how he remains a son of favor and how God can transform an unrighteous man into a righteous man and how God will use that man as a portrait of grace as he displays him as one made worthy of inheriting the blessing of the grace of God as one who will hold a to the continuity of the promise and ultimately the line of Judah, a line of kings, a line of the promised Messiah. This chapter is the story of a remnant of grace. How do we get through it? The mess that is Genesis 38. Let's do it in three acts like a play. Three acts like a play. Act one, the remnant in jeopardy, verses 1 through 11. Act 1, the remnant is in jeopardy. Judah's line is in jeopardy. Genesis 38, 1. It came about at that time. The drama of Genesis is so beautiful. This is not an interruption. This is a correlation. The Joseph story began with such intrigue, right? He's in a pit, and then he's in a caravan, sold to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer. For the reader at this point, Joseph is off the scene. For his father, Joseph is dead. For his brothers, he's a problem solved. And so with Reuben disqualified in just chapters prior, Simeon disqualified, Levi disqualified, it makes sense that the author that Moses goes to, Genesis 38, to tell us, well, what of Judah? Because he's next in line. And so if this was a scene, the the caravan pulls away after making a deal to sell this favorite brother into slavery to Potiphar and the screen fades to black And it comes back to us, and the camera pans across, and it goes to Judah. And like Joseph, he's left home as well. He's gone out to make a way for himself. But he's left willingly to start his family. At the same time as Joseph's adventures in Egypt begin, Judah makes it out on his own, departing, verse 1, from his brothers and visiting a certain Adjulamite whose name was Harah. Judah becomes friends with the inhabitants of the land, with godless men. And one of the primary concerns of Genesis is on display here, isn't it? The technical word is endogamy. It's God's desire that his people would be separate, that they would not intermarry, 
endogamy. It's stay within the family of God, marry within the family of God. There's lots of examples of that in Genesis. Abraham forbade his servant from finding a wife for his son Isaac among the Canaanites. He was very serious about it. Isaac likewise carried that same torch and forbid Jacob from marrying a Canaanite. I mean, Judah's father, Jacob, made that arduous journey all the way to Padan Aram to find Rachel and the Leah Swaparu disaster happens. But this concern would have been something that Judah knew because it was his own family history, the story of his father and his father fathers. Yet he moves off to be among the Canaanites, to befriend them, and he becomes like them. And sure enough, verse 2, he finds a woman unnamed in our story that becomes his wife, and she's a Canaanite. This is a sin. This act dishonors God. He did not employ the faith of his father or his father's father in finding a wife within the covenant family of God. Instead, he married Shua's daughter. And using the language of the Adam and Eve story of Eve taking the fruit, that's the same phraseology you see in verse 2, he took her and went into her. This was forbidden fruit, yet in spite of his compromise, he apparently receives the blessing of God. The fruit of the womb being the blessing of God, they understood that. And he doesn't have just one son, he has three sons at the outset of the story. And so Jacob's family grows through Judah's line. And he has a son named Ur, and a son named Onan, and a son named Shelah. And we see his tribe beginning to grow, all of them intermarrying the Canaanites, all of them living in Canaanite land. The chapter is rife with Canaanite terminology of cultic worship, from the veiling of the prostitute to her pretending to be uh, on the the way she relates to Tamar, to the wearing of the veil, to the implied uh, rituals of fertility and the sheep shearing scene. This is all very Canaanite because these guys are neck deep in, in godless culture. They, they've drank it down. But God intervenes in a surprising dark providence for this family. In verse 7, the firstborn son, the one who would carry Judah's line forward, is assessed by God in verse 7 to be evil, and the Lord takes his life. Well, what did he do wrong? We have no idea. The text doesn't tell us. But somehow God strikes him dead. One of my favorite sermons I used to listen to when I was in college was a recording by Donald Gray Barnhouse. And the name of the sermon was that he was that great Presbyterian uh, first Presbyterian pastor in the tenth Presbyterian pastor in Philadelphia, Donald Gray Barnhouse. He talked like a bulldog with a chain smoking habit. <clears throat> he had this wonderful sermon. Men who God struck dead it was the name of the sermon. It was a ser- it was a ser- yet? I mean, he's gone. You could take it for next Sunday. It was a survey of everyone God directly killed in the Bible. These guys were in it, and I said, Sapphira in it. I mean, it's, it's a heavy-duty sermon. It goes, men who God struck dead, and every time he says dead, he goes, dead. <laughs> Not seeker-sensitive. <laughs> it's a powerful sermon because it's a reminder that this, that this text is to us. It's, it's a reminder that there's, there's holiness to God. And the way Paul said it to the Galatians is, don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. You don't mess with a holy God. And there's an example of that. 
It's important that we dial in here and understand that the threat to the lineage being the author's agenda here, because after the first son dies, it says the text says in verse 8 that Judah tells Onan, the secondborn, to go into his brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. Please understand, this is not how things work, unless you're in the very rural south. But this is, no offense, (laughs) this is how it was supposed to work in ancient times of the Hebrew people. This is called Leverite marriage. This is something that was God's will for the preservation of the family and the protection of the most disadvantaged in all society, which were widows. God has a great concern for widows all over the Scripture, and that's clear. And that's why this portrait is a prelude to the book of Ruth in many ways. Here we have a woman, a foreign woman, married into an Israelite family who loses her husband. God's desire is that she would be cared for and that dead son, that firstborn son's line, that generations would be guarded and insured and protected. And so it was the brother's duty to bring her into his family if he was unmarried to marry her and that be his wife. Now this put the brother, the the Leverite in this Leverite marriage, in a disadvantaged position. Because the children that came from his brother's wife were not technically his children, but his brother's children by way of inheritance. The blessing, the family name, and the line would continue on through the dead brother's children. This is exactly how God wanted it to be. And Judah knew that. And so he did the noble thing, the righteous thing, and he ordered a Leverite marriage. Your brother's dead, you take care of her. If he were to not do this, she would be left destitute. She would be in danger from others, men in society. This isn't a time of police or 911 or rights or laws. This is the wild world of Canaanite wilderness. A widow was very unsafe. And so bringing her into the brother's home was for good. It was honorable for the proliferation of the dead brother's line. Everybody follows that. You want more information on it? Read the book of Ruth or Deuteronomy 25, which describes the laws for Leverite marriage. Deuteronomy 25 wasn't written yet, but like so much of God's law, it was, it was given to these people. It was ingrained in them early on, even far back in days close to the garden. And so whatever this proto-Leverite thing is happening is a good thing. But Onan doesn't do it. He was told to. He knew it was the right thing, but he intentionally would not impregnate his brother's wife, his wife now. And God was displeased. This wasn't about the relationship between Onan and Tamar. This is only and simply about dishonoring God's will for the protection of the brother's line, which is ultimately Judah's line, which is ultimately Jacob's line, which is ultimately Abraham's line. He is sinning against his dead brother. He's sinning against his father. He's sinning against his wife. He's sinning against the entire generations to follow. And ultimately by doing this, he's sinning against God. So God takes him out to men who God struck dead, part two in this passage. And so now we have two sons dead, and we still have a widow, and we don't have a family line for Judah. And so what is to take place? Verse 11, then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. And that's the end of Act 1. And the curtain opens on Act 2. And here we see Tamar's desperate scheme. We can call it the remnant preserved, the remnant preserved through the mire. The remnant preserved through the mire. Looking quickly at verses 12 through 23, Tamar's desperate scheme is, is clear. She's desperate. 
and she understands God's requirements, the third brother needs to step up. It's his duty before God and his family to marry this widow. Judah is hesitant for obvious reasons. Instead of thinking, you know, this is what happens when you live in Canaanite land and marry Canaanites and live among cultic practices and don't stay faithful to Yahweh, bad stuff happens to your family. That's what he should have been thinking. Instead, he thinks this girl is bad luck. My son died. My second son died. I am not signing up my third son. No Bed Bath & Beyond registry. We're done. Get rid of her. And by doing that, Judah is now sinning against God in a grievous way to the same level that killed his two sons. In word, he's saying, well, we just got to wait for him to get a little bit older. The third brother, just go to your father's house, stay a widow. He dishonors the law of God. He dishonors Tamar in doing this. And so Tamar gets desperate, verse 12. It says, now after a considerable time, she had waited and waited and waited because she knew this family as well. She knew the stories about Abraham. She knew about Isaac. She knew about Jacob. She knew about the promise. She knew about the covenants. She was a Canaanite, but she was now part of Israel. She's grafted into this family, and she suffered loss too. So before you get all judgy on her little prostitute act here, which is not commendable by any means, but before you get distracted and condemn her the way Judah is about to, put yourself in her desperate shoes. She's the only one concerned about what God was concerned about, which is the preservation of this godly line and the whole Ark of Genesis, which is the covenant of promise. Her concern is the right concern. Her actions, not the right actions. But she's saying, where's my husband? Who will protect the family line? How will God fulfill his purposes? And she finishes her time of mourning, and another tragedy strikes in verse 12. She was her daughter. The wife of Judah dies. So now Judah is a widower, and he goes to agricultural business and to shear the sheep, time of fertility rituals, cultic practices for the people outside of Israel. The people that Judah and his family would have chosen to live among, part of those rituals would have been cultic prostitution, deviant acts of worship in order to ensure fertility for the crops and the lambs. And she knows this being a Canaanite, and she dresses herself up like a Canaanite prostitute, and she puts herself on the road strategically to deceive Judah because Judah didn't do what he was supposed to do. Keep that in mind. Judah sees her, assumes she's a harlot, talks to his knucklehead buddy, a Julamite. You shouldn't have a Julamite buddies. That's a takeaway. He says, I'm going to visit her. And she says, how are you going to pay? And he says, I'll give you a goat. And she, crafty, says, you don't have a goat. Why don't you give me a pledge? And he says, what do you want? She says, how about that seal and that cord and that staff in your hand? I'll hang on to that until you get your payment to me. In disguise and deceit, she takes his staff, some recognizable, finely crafted, like a walking stick, but with the family line and insignia engraved on it, something recognizable as Judah's staff, the cord likely hung around his neck, probably something made of fine materials, that signet ring, don't think medieval, uh, you know, wax ring thing, think a big old medallion that hung on a cord that was distinctive to his tribe, distinctive to his family line, something that was his identifying marker. It's if you rent golf clubs out of town and you got to leave your credit card. It's something like that. Not exactly like that, but something like that. It's a guarantee, a deposit, and she takes it. And he goes into her and he gets her pregnant, you see. She was supposed to be pregnant. She was supposed to be married to that third son, Shelah. And then this act of deceit, she fools her father-in-law into fulfilling what he was unwilling to do with his son. Now, Canaanites had Leverite marriages too, which would include the father-in-law, but that's not how it was supposed to work in Israel. 
But this is how she accomplishes her purposes. It's a difficult scene, and then it turns almost comic after its grotesque kind of nature. It becomes comic because he sends his friend with a goat to go pay the prostitute. And he's wandering around the village going like, has anybody seen the prostitute? I have this goat following me. I, it's, not, it's not my goat, not my prostitute. I'm, I work for somebody else. This just doesn't get more awkward than this. She's out of her disguise. Everyone says there's nobody like that here. We don't know what you're talking about. Judah is rightly embarrassed, says in verse 23. Let her keep him. Otherwise, we'll become a laughing stock after this. I tried to send the goat, but we couldn't find her. Let's wash our hands of this whole ordeal. Or so he thinks, right? Act 3, verse 24 through 30. The remnant remains always by grace. The remnant remains always by grace. And what we see here is a beautiful turning point in Judah's life. Something that we're intended to see when we read this chapter the first time, but you really only see it once you have the whole scope of of biblical uh, revelation. So catch it. The remnant remains always and only by God's grace. This is Judah's turning point. Here we see the magnificent grace of God on display. Verse 24, now it had been about three months. Her pregnancy is showing, and Judah was informed. uh, His daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot, and behold, she's also with child by harlotry. This is the rumor that came because she's a widow, a single woman, unmarried. She's living in her father's house dressed as a widow, but somehow she's gotten pregnant. Judah, in partial agreement with the law, says adultery is punishable by, by death, but Judah, in an act of unrestrained and and wrathful vengeance that is far too zealous on par with Simeon and Levi in his unrighteous retribution on par with Reuben in his gross sexual immorality says, let her be burned. Bring her out and burn her. That's egregious. That's evil. That's wicked. There's no due process there. There's no taking into account who's the father. This is an inappropriate, vengeful act. This is a violation in and of itself of Israelite law. And I wonder if in his mind he's thinking there, well, this this gets Shelah out of the situation permanently. This solves our problem with this accursed woman. Gets her out of the family, and as they drag her out to be burned publicly at Judah's bequest, verse 25, it was there she being brought out. I mean, the the vivid action of the text, being brought out to be burned, that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And then she shows the receipts. She's got his credit card, signet ring, cord, staff, examine these and see whose ring and cord and staff are these. And in verse 26, we see what becomes a turning point in Judah's life. Judah recognized his stuff, obviously, and all the pieces came together. All the memories of his daughter-in-law, Tamar, his dead son, his second dead son, the grief over his lost wife when he visited the prostitute on his way to shear the sheep, the veil, the realization. It all hits him at this moment. The awareness that he didn't do what he was supposed to do by arranging his third son to be married to this girl because she was part of his family and he didn't do her right. And in this moment, he sees his staff and his signet ring and his cord and the conviction over his sin comes to him with these words in verse 26, she is more righteous than I. Inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shelah. 
I don't know if it's when he said, bring her out to be burned, or when he said, whose ring and cords and staff are these, or, or both of those moments are sentences that remind me of Judah's descendant, David. The same kind of words when David was brought to a place of repentance, when he was deep in his egregious sin. When he had to be visited by Nathan the prophet, tells him the story of, of the lamb being stolen from this family, this one little lamb by the rich guy with the lamb factory, and he just kills this, this family's pet lamb. And David is enraged, right? And he says, let him be burned, basically. Deal with him as king. His righteous indignation on parallel with Judah's righteous indignation about his daughter-in-law's sin of adultery. And Nathan looks at David and says, Atahaish in Hebrew, you are that man. And it hits David, doesn't it? He realizes sin, he can't cover it up anymore. God gives him repentance. And here's Judah. She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her my son, Shelah. And so he does right by her. He doesn't marry her, that would be inappropriate. It's not Leverite. She's now holding the family line in her womb. In a remarkable turn of God's providence, God shows Judah his sin, his lack of righteousness, and then gives Judah a blessing through such a convoluted, sinful scenario. But still the stunning and remarkable grace of God's on display because Tamar doesn't have one son. She has two twins. And they're reenacting the the Jacob and Esau story, right? Right in their birth time. A reminder, a remember that this story stayed, started with Judah having how many sons? He had three sons. And two of them die as one son. And his preeminent concern is, I don't want my son to die. I only have one son. I know it's what God wants, but it's not what I want. And then in recognizing his own unrighteousness through the deceitfulness of Tamar, he sees it now and he sees God's blessing because the chapter ends with him holding his two twin boys and he's got three sons again. And the promise will carry on through Perez. And it's really an awesome providence. When it's read backwards, the question was, is Judah morally fit to carry the promised seed? It's the theme of Genesis. And instead of writing Judah off, as the reader may be prone to do, after hearing the first half of his life, we get to this turning point. He's thought of as evil. His sons are evil, like father, like son in Genesis. He's, they've been killed for, for various reasons. Uh, their sin is exposed, flagrant, repeated, dishonoring to God. He, he's dishonored his marital responsibilities. He owed to the dead brother, the father, his family line, and God put a stop to it. Judah wrongly blames Tamar, a cursed woman in his mind, unable to see the moral decay in his own boys. He blames his daughter-in-law because sin is so blinding like that what Judah is doing. Holiness took a second place to his apparent happiness, and God's revealed will was put aside for a plan that seems right into a man, but the end is a way of death. Judah begins his story unconcerned and dishonest as Ur and Onan, his sons, unwilling to endanger his last sons. He knows that this marriage is to be arranged as a patriarch's responsibility, but he's unwilling to obey God because the cost seems so great. He postpones, he puts it off, he delays, never intending to obey God's design. He walks by sight, not by faith, and takes the beguiling treachery of a Canaanite daughter-in-law to get his head on straight because he finds out that God means every word he says. 
After he lies to Tamar, he said he was going to bring her back, but he didn't. He showed that he was weak and compromising. And he tells his grieving and mistreated daughter-in-law that she will, he will not do the righteous thing. Look, Judah's a bad guy. He got tricked in a lesson that's not about the wrongness of prostitution. He got tricked by his daughter-in-law in a suspenseful scene where he's confronted and his response ultimately is honorable. Judah does not discount himself or disqualify himself here. Instead, he gains the reader's interest because he does the hard thing. And like every true repentance, like every display of gospel grace in someone's life, it bears fruit. And the scene ends, and it goes back to the Joseph story. Joseph is made ruler of Egypt through all the adventures you you go in the coming chapters, right? Joseph isn't a perfect man either, by the way. He's a righteous man, but he's got flaws. You've seen him on display already, and when he's trying to when he's face-to-face with his brothers holding Simeon hostage, and he's trying to figure out, well, what should he do with these brothers who did him so wrong? And so perfect son Joseph gets a little dishonest subterfuge going himself. He hides a cup in Benjamin's bag, his father's new favorite son, the youngest son, precious to him. And he makes the brothers bring Benjamin back because the first time they came, he wasn't with them. And Reuben is the firstborn, and, and I knew we should have done that, he says. And Simeon gets all bound up in this thing. The, the Joseph story is a disaster. And when the brothers all come back in chapter 44, one brother rises up in the most climactic moment in the Joseph story where it looks like perhaps Joseph would be willing to steal a brother to pay his brothers back to find some way to get back for what happened to him. Because at this point in the story, I don't think Joseph has in his mind, God meant it for good and you meant it for evil. It's not in his mouth yet. Instead, he's still tricking his brothers, pretending to be someone he's not. He's trying to steal one brother away and do them some harm. And Joseph says this, you've stolen from me, all this subterfuge. And Judah stands up, the first among the brothers, Genesis forty-four sixteen, And what does he say? What can we say, my Lord? This is Judah speaking. What can we say, my Lord? What can we speak and how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whom possession the cup has been found. He's willing to assume the guilt. The crazy thing is that Benjamin didn't even do it. This is all Joseph's trick. But Joseph doubles down and says, far be it for me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. As for you, go up in peace to your father. But Judah continues his speech in verse 18. He says, oh, my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears. Do not be angry with your servant, for you're equal to Pharaoh, my Lord. Asked his servant, saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have an old father, a little child of old age. He he recounts the story. And he tells them that if they were to go through with this transaction, the father would die. And Judah, in this wonderful moment of redemption, proving that he's a, a changed man, recounting the harm that this would bring to their father, Judah continues an incredible speech and and says, Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life. When he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die, and thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. Listen to what Judah says in verse 32 of Genesis 44. 
for your servants became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please, please let your servant myself, let Judah remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go to my father if the lad is not with me for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? What a speech. A speech that's not only noble and confessional and true and repentant, but fully aware of all that God had done in his own life. It is the speech of a man who's starting to read providence backwards. A man whose back is up against the wall and made the wrong choice. A man who understood what it was like to lose a son and then another son and to have this one precious son and to him threatened. And he understood Judah is showing himself in this narrative to be a changed man. Changed so much that he's now willing to sacrifice himself for his brother. He puts himself to Joseph for his own harm. He intercedes as a substitute for Benjamin. And in this act of substitution, of intercession, it's that that breaks the heart of Joseph in chapter 45. Joseph finally stops the lies. He breaks down and cries. He dismisses all the Egyptians from the room and lets himself be known to his brothers. There's weeping. There's reunion, reconciliation. They're hugging each other. There's so much emotion. And then Joseph finally says, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh. It was what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Where did he learn that from? That speech he learned from Judah. Judah's repentance was displayed. Judah is showing in that recounting of the entire journey that he understands the providence of God, that his life is worth laying down for the life of Benjamin. Judah swore to his own hurt. Judah trusted in the sovereignty of God, no longer scheming, willing to lay his life down, a reminder that one day someone in his tribe would be a righteous king, a man after God's own heart, who would have an even greater son, a king like no other, who will fit in David's throne and rule and reign forever, a perfectly righteous Judean who would not just offer to lay down his life, but would be a sacrifice for the sins of the unrighteous, the righteous one in their place. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. Judah here is functioning like a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he looks at Joseph, this powerful Egyptian ruler in his eyes, and sees trembling Benjamin and thinks of the harm it would do to the father, he says in such a Christ-like way, take me instead. It's that kind of noble sacrifice that will mark the tribe of Judah and the scepter that they carry. A chapter like this reminds us to fix our minds and hearts on God's good, gracious, wise, sovereign providence and rule. It gives us the assurance that even sinners like us can be changed and saved and redeemed and used to accomplish God's amazing sovereign purposes, that he can overcome the sin and darkness in our own lives and histories and choices and families and experiences and use them to accomplish his ultimate good the preservation brothers of the remnant, the continuance of the remnant is solely and completely a product of God's grace. In this dark age, the church will prevail. 
God's people will be preserved in spite of sin's societal decay and Satan's devices. Christ will accomplish all his good purposes. His church will grow. His shepherds will be sustained. And his sovereign grace will be magnified. You can bank on it. Because God saved a Judahite by his grace all those years ago. And God will always preserve that remnant. All those Judeans until the finest and fullest expression of this royal line would be brought forth in the fullness of time. And someday, brothers, we will all read providence backwards and see that every sinful episode, every intervention of God's grace, every tear and every sorrow will lead like a river to the throne of God where we will see that lion-like ruler God's own son, Judah's descendant, and Judah's Lord. And it will all be worth it because it was all grace that preserves the remnant. Father, thank you for your word and all its richness. Thank you for the truth that we've heard about election today, about you preserving your remnant by grace. None of us deserve salvation. It's all from your mercy. So God, thank you for preserving us, for sustaining us. Thank you for your perfect sovereignty. In Jesus' name, amen.